The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's episode is a little unique because we are starting to get back into some themes that we had discussed before, and those relate specifically to the archaeology of regions and the relationships of human landscapes and uh, human settlement. And today's area is, is, is truly unique because we are going to be discussing the northern Atlantic. We're talking about cold climate environments, which are uniquely sensitive to both climate change and human settlement geography. And I think that as time goes on and we get embroiled in the climate change argument, the data that are coming out from the northern Atlantic and from the Scandinavian countries, Greenland, Iceland, as well as the Scandinavian countries. Those are the types of landscapes and environmental records that will probably provide a tremendous key to the entire question of, of what climate, climate warming and global warming really is going uh, to be about, because the first areas that really get uh, measured in terms of those changes are in the northern Atlantic uh, region. This is also an area that has been fascinating for a lot of reasons uh, regarding the settlement of Euro-Americans in the New World. Uh, there is uh, the question of when the Vikings came here, which is uh, an, an issue that my next guest and, and my guest for this program is familiar with. So let me introduce him, uh, Dr. Thomas McGovern, is a professor of archaeology at the City University of New York Graduate Center and at Hunter College in New York City. He received his PhD at Columbia University in 1979. He specializes in zooarchaeology, or uh, the examination of faunal remains, or animal bones, at archaeological sites. And he has extensive fieldwork experience in North America, Europe, the Eastern Arctic, and the Caribbean, with a major focus on the European expansion of the Viking Age, uh, between 800 and 1,000 years after the Common Era, and uh, is also involved in a diverse sets, a set of North Atlantic island ecosystem research questions 
and the dynamics of human impact on natural landscapes. Climate change obviously figures greatly into this uh, type of research, and he will be talking about that. Dr. McGovern is one of the founders of the North Atlantic Biocultural Organization, uh, acronym NABO, and it's, he's been its coordinator since 1992. He also directs the Hunter College Zooarchaeology Laboratory and is an associate director of the Human Ecodynamic Research Center at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Tom, it's my pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Tom, let's start with something that I think is a topic of grand interest to a lot of people, and not necessarily the professional community, but certainly folks who are looking at questions and are interested, and in some cases very interested, in questions of the peopling of North America by Euro-Americans. And uh, in the past 20 or 30 years, I would, I would say su suggest that the profile of the Vikings as the earlier uh, settlers of North America has really assumed a, a major position in, uh, in the way that we interpret and uh, assemble the history of Euro-American colonization. Why don't you enlighten us a little bit on your research on that question and where you think matters stand now with respect to the Viking settlement versus, say, the Colombian settlement of uh, the end of the 15th century? Sure. I think probably uh, the first thing to say is that uh, I'm really summarizing a lot of research that's, that's not just mine, and it's coming from a lot of our friends and colleagues in the NAVO network. So uh, I'm sort of drawing a lot of other people's ideas, which is a good Viking thing to do, I guess. <laughs> uh, so you have then the, uh, the, the big question to think about here is what was different around the year 1000 when the Vikings came to North America versus 500 years later, after Columbus, when you have the the multiple contacts across the Atlantic, the Columbian Exchange changes the world forever. Um, potatoes go to Ireland, uh, corn goes uh, to uh, all over the world, but Southeast Asia. Uh, smallpox comes to North America. Everything changes. Um, as far as we can tell, the long-term impact of the Norse contact with North America, and they certainly did get there, um, had much less impact. Uh, you don't get this transformation of the globe that you get after Columbus. And so the good question is, for what, what was different? Um, you put it another way, sort of what went wrong with the Vinland colonization? Uh, why aren't we speaking some dialect of uh, Scandinavian language now? Why did history go in a different direction? So there's lots of answers to that kind of questions. Um, some of them are just about time and technology. Uh, certainly, when the Vikings crossed the North Atlantic, they were using the cutting-edge technology of their time, clinker-built wooden boats, and a navigational system, which must have been pretty sophisticated, and which we don't really still fully understand, but gave them the ability to sail across the North Atlantic, go far outside of, the, of land, and, um, and get across. But a critical difference is the size of the vessels. Um, the biggest of the Norse cargo ships, which is probably what they were actually using and going across the North Atlantic rather than the, the dragon ships you see in the, the movies, um, had a cargo capacity about one-tenth the size of Columbus's ships. So they just didn't have as much capacity to put people and animals on the ground when they got there. So it's, uh, it's less than we have cargo capacity is a big deal here. The other thing to think about is, of course, that Columbus was doing the equivalent of applying for a research grant, you know, going and talking his way into the, the good graces of Ferdinand and Isabella, and made uh, a royal pilgrim trip across, funded by a nation state. 
And that's very different from the process that brought uh, humans across the North Atlantic 500 years before, that you have a, a process of colonization and takes about 200 years uh, to get people from the Faroe Islands, the Orkneys, uh, to Iceland in the 870s, to Greenland 985, and then Vinland right around the year 1000. Uh, so this isn't at all something sponsored by nation-state. Um, it's instead very much private enterprise kind of thing happening. This is sort of a family affair with individual groups of people going together under the leadership of chieftains. So, again, it's a, it's a smaller-scale operation. Um, but it did happen. And we know thanks to the work uh, of Brigitte Wallace and her colleagues from Parks Canada who put in an amazing series of seasons of excavation and following up work done by Helge Ingstad from Norway at the site of Lonson Meadows in northern Newfoundland. We know that's definitely a place the Norse got to. Uh, we know thanks to the work that uh, her teams did with the, uh, the environmental remains, especially uh, things like um, uh, pits of, 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 uh, of, of um, uh, nuts from, from uh, North, America, North America, the people from Lonson Meadows were exploring further south. They were exploring at least along the south shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Uh, the open question, of course, is how much further they got. Uh, there's a, a vast literature on Norspin showing up in Minnesota and Florida and elsewhere. Um, and I think we can pretty much sum up the idea that that's probably not happening. Um, Vinland that we know about is almost certainly restricted to the area somewhere in the Gulf of St. Lawrence region, and it's very likely that the three uh, structures and the smithy that Brigitte and her teams excavated uh, is, in fact, the lease booths that appear in the Icelandic sagas. It's very unlikely that anything of that scale uh, could have been duplicated given the size of the settlement. And the size of the settlement comes back against the question of why did it, did it not succeed. Uh, it was very small. Uh, Greenland was the supplier of people going to Iceland. So the colony in Greenland had been established in the 980s, and uh, just about a generation later, they begin to go across. And Greenland's population, at least initially, we think, was pretty small, probably only five or 600 people. Um, so having three boatloads of folks showing up at Lonsa Meadows is a good proportion of the available shipping and a good proportion of available people who are there to go and, and try the new settlement. So good question then, so, okay, why, why didn't it get blossom? Why didn't it go further? And I think it's, it's good to realize that lots of colonization efforts fail, uh, both biological colonization and human colonies. Uh, if you look at the history of colonization along the coast of North America after 1500, there's a remarkable number of, of places that didn't make it past the first generation, past even the first few years of settlement. So it's, it's, not, out of, it's not unexpected that you wind up having a settlement failure. As far as we know about what happened, um, the, the documentary sources are in two much later uh, Norse sagas. And it's good to realize that the saga description is probably more like a historical novel than a real annal account. It's written down much, much after the events they're describing. And, of course, it's written down for, for good reasons, for political purposes. So what we know about it, though, is they tell us the only bad thing about Vinland the Good is it's full of people. The Skraling are there. The Native Americans are there. Um, and they successfully defend the territory and make it too dangerous for the, the Norse to, to remain there with a uh, uh, successful settlement. 
Uh, there's a wonderful story, maybe even true, of Thorvald, uh, one of Eric the Red's sons, uh, who is shot in the belly by an arrow and pulls it out. Good Viking, his last words are, ah, you know, there's fat around my belly, you can see it in the arrow. It's a good <laughs> country, but I won't live to, to enjoy it. And he, he falls over dead. Uh, and again, you can believe that one if you want to, but it's, it's a good story. And it sums up uh, a bunch of the problems that they were facing. Um, as Jared Diamond said later, um, the problem the Norse had was, well, no guns, not much steel, and most importantly, no germs. As far as we can tell, the Norse settlers of the North Atlantic did not bring smallpox and some of the other great killing diseases across the North Atlantic, uh, and therefore didn't have that kind of a, uh, unintended or unanticipated advantage over the Native American folks. Um, so this may be sort of a, a little bit of an experiment on what might have happened in the Columbian exchange period if there hadn't been the huge uh, demographic impact of smallpox and all the other imported European Eurasian diseases uh, in the Americas. It may have gone very differently then, too. So Vinland seems to have failed for a, a number of reasons. And again, another reason, of course, is, is history, the piece of time that this is happening in. If you look around the year 1000, this is also about the point where the impetus for colonization across the North Atlantic, for people making the, the really risky decision to put their, their families and their possessions in a boat and sail off across the horizon, the impetus for that is probably declining. Um, by the year 1000, um, you can go to Normandy. You can settle in northern England. You can settle um, in parts of France if you're a Northman. And you don't have to, to worry about going to Vinland to get wine. You can get wine right from France. So the, the opportunities opened up by the later part of the Viking Age with the increasing warfare and the successful uh, conquests and settlements and the Dane law in northern England uh, and in Ireland and in Scotland and in parts of France. Um, these are all opening up opportunities for people, and I suspect that's one more reason why you didn't have a continued pipeline of, of young, active aristocrats and their families, um, wealthy enough to have a ship, who are willing to make the, the decision to go off to Vinland and, and try to make it work, despite the resistance. So I think it's a, it's a bunch of things coming together, like a lot of other causation. But I think we can now see the, the Vinland colonization attempt as something which is very different from what happened later 500 years uh, with Columbus. And we'll have to take a break right here, and we'll resume our discussions with uh, Dr. Thomas McGovern on the Norse settlement of uh, North America after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and we are discussing archaeology on the lands of the Vikings and specifically developments in North Atlantic archaeology, which is, as I said, indicated earlier, a, a world sort of on its own and up on its own and, and, and sort of a, uh, a region that uh, in some ways is uh, such a, a marvelous indicator of trends that will uh, probably fashion the way that archaeology and its implications for the contemporary world uh, will will emerge as we will uh, develop that discussion as we go forward. One of the uh, a couple of the major points that that Tom McGovern made here were uh, some items that I think many people aren't really familiar with, and that was that unequivocally the Norse got to North America fully 500 years before uh, Columbus did, and that's a major major issue here. And the other uh, item that uh, Dr. McGovern emphasized was that. Um, that the extent and the success rates of that settlement were very limited. And, and it's, it, it's important to say that. I think that one of the trends that we've tried to emphasize in this show is that Euro-Americans migrated out of Europe and largely settled in portions of North America that they were suitable for settling in. So that, for example, the, uh, when, when, when Dr. McGovern was talking about the larger success rate of uh, say the Europe, the Southern European expansion into North America. The reason that that succeeded was that basically there was uh, significant supporting infrastructures in the lands of origins. That in many ways, in, in, in a crass sense, the, the development in those parts of the world—Spain, France, England—those um, th infrastructures were well in place. 
um, in the 15th and 16th century so that the chances of those colonizations to succeed were much greater, the environments that they could get adjusted to were much more expansive, and in contrast to that, the, the Norse, the Vikings, the, the, the settlers in the North Atlantic were basically cold climate people. And their settlements apparently su succeeded to some degree in areas where you would expect them to succeed in uh, eastern Canada, uh, northern United States. And I would like you, Tom, to expound a little bit more on how successful you think those adaptations were, and will history judge the Norse as having succeeded in, in uh, establishing sort of outposts in North America, and what eventually drove them out, and why didn't they succeed? Uh-huh. I think um, one of the things that has happened over the last uh, decade or so is a real change in our understanding of the nature of the kinds of adaptations that the Norse uh, managed across the North Atlantic, stretching into Vinland. And I think one of the things we begin to realize is that some of the stories that we told Jared Diamond about 10 years ago, and which wound up in collapse, um, kind of are, are a little wrong-headed now. Uh, not because um, he was wrong, but because we've learned a lot in between. Uh, the old story which we gave him was you're seeing a actually very flexible, very successful a uh, hybrid community which has both British Isles components to it and Nordic components, Scandinavian components, uh, that's going out from both western Norway and northern Norway, um, probably even the Baltic, and then mixing with Celtic people um, in probably the Faroes in northern uh, Scotland. We know from DNA evidence, both ancient DNA from uh, coming from, from dead folks and modern DNA coming from live people in the North Atlantic. This is a very major admixture of Celtic people into the Viking world uh, that's happening around the year 800 as they're mixing with people in the Faroe Islands and Scotland and, and uh, in, in Ireland so that at least 65% of the women uh, who were colonizing Iceland were from non-Nordic but from Celtic backgrounds. So that's a pretty major admixture. And uh, something also, that's not known. It's something yeah. that's not known, right. Yeah. yeah, so so what we're seeing here is the creation of a, a somewhat hybrid culture as they're going out in the North Atlantic. They're certainly Scandinavian in terms of speech and in terms of art, and there's no question that's the dominant part of the culture. Uh, but that said, um, there is a lot of components which you're now seeing coming from the other side as well. Uh, for example, the use of peat for fuel, construction is turf and stone, uh, extensive use of bird cliffs for, for getting seabirds to eat. Uh, these are all things which seem to be coming into the mix of skills which the Norse have in the North Atlantic from the Celtic world. So when they're going out there, they are, they are taking this range of skills with them. And, of course, when they're going out into the North Atlantic, they're using this, this new maritime capacity that they've developed uh, to reach some of the last settled places on Earth. Uh, Iceland uh, is settled probably by humans not much before, about 850, 875. We know this from the, uh, the volcanic tephra, which allowed really good dating uh, on Iceland. And Greenland is first settled by agriculturalists. There were certainly there were non-farming uh, Inuit hunter-gatherers there before, but it's first settled by farmers again uh, in this period. So what you're seeing is the spread across the North Atlantic of this hybrid very vigorous culture 
uh, with good seafaring capacity, with the capacity to combine uh, northern farming, farming adapted to long, cold winters, uh, that is capable of surviving in areas where you can't grow grain, um, you can't really grow much barley and ice, although they certainly tried. Um, but mostly what they're doing is they're gathering hay and fodder for their animals, and the challenge there is getting the animals through a long, cold winter, uh, the sheep, the goats, cows, pigs, uh, horses, dogs. Um, and we can see from the zooarchaeology, both from the zooarchaeology, the, the big animals, but also from the zooarchaeology, the insects, which is also going across the North Atlantic, that these folks are bringing with them a whole host of creatures, some deliberately imported, like the sheep and goats and cows, some accidentally imported, like mice, uh, who we now genetically know are coming across the North Atlantic at the same time, uh, and also a whole host of insects that get imported as well, and uh, weeds of cultivation. So if you look at the, the biogeography of the North uh, spread, one thing that happens when they hit Iceland is they completely change the place in terms of biogeography, in terms of biodiversity. You go from a situation where the only native Icelandic land animal, uh, mammal, was an Arctic fox, to a situation where you have a whole bunch of animals and a hugely increased number of insects and, and plants. So it's a real transformation. And these are all imported. These are all they're imported. All imported. They're all coming across in these Viking ships. And uh, that's actually one of the first indications that you definitely have people there as they're bringing all these things with them. So to some extent, that's kind of prefiguring what you see later with Columbus, but it's on a much smaller scale. But again, as right. you're saying, if you're talking about the north, small, cold Arctic islands, um, relatively small contacts, small numbers of people have major impacts. So one of the things that happened in Iceland was very rapid deforestation in many parts of Iceland, uh, more gradual elsewhere, but they went from having about 20%, 25% uh, cover of uh, Arctic, small Arctic trees to down to about 2%. So deforestation is a big part of the story here. Iceland also has a center for, for major erosion, uh, something like 40% of the soil present, not just the vegetation, but the soil, has washed away, has blown away um, since the, the Norse got there. So there's a big environmental impact story here. Uh, these folks are not treading too lightly on the environment. They are, in fact, changing things very dramatically. And the introduction of these, these grazing animals, uh, coupled with climate change, winds up having really major impacts uh, in Iceland, um, and a bit less so in Greenland. And as they're coming across the North Atlantic, one of the things that, that, that probably wasn't very visible to them, but certainly made a big impact later, was the fact that they're coming across going from north to south, and yet as they're going south, south from Arctic Norway, south even from parts of Scotland to Iceland and then to southern Greenland, they're actually going further into the Arctic because of the way the uh, uh, sea currents work. You have right. the Gulf Stream washing across, and so Arctic Norway is actually much more temperate than parts of Iceland. And, of course, when you get to Greenland, you're really in the Arctic. Um, but the same kinds of plants and animals that they would have seen in Norway and the Western Isles of Scotland are pretty much the same ones you see right across the Greenland. You don't get the biogeographical break until it's between uh, Canada and Greenland. So as they're going across, they're, they're probably perceiving their environment as being much more uniform than it was going to be later. And, of course, this has the, the, the impact on, um, on knowledge, on adaptation. You know, what can we get away with here? How many animals can we keep? Uh, how long can we keep them up in the upper uh, elevations? And what can we get away with here? And, of course, expectations formed in Scotland 
and in Norway uh, are going to turn out to not be fulfilled when they get out into the mid-North Atlantic. So there, there's a bunch of surprises waiting for these folks as they go out into this region. Um, and, of course, there's this climate change. One of the, the best things that, that climatology has, has done for archaeology recently has been to get down to the human scale of years and even seasons in a multitude of different kinds of climate indicators, ranging from pollen to ice cores. Um, and in the last five years, a series of multi-proxy um, sort of consensus statements have, been, have come out, which really allow us to get some pretty decent reconstruction down to the annual scale of climate change, temperature change, and indirectly storminess changes across the whole area, right down to the level of individual years. Um, so we can actually look at strings of years, and we can look at sudden bad things happening, cold snaps happening. We can also look at the accumulation of, of just variability in different time periods. So this gives us a whole bunch of tools for putting together uh, farmers' decisions, human, human thought, human cognition, with a particular series of climate changes. Really, you're talking here at this scale about weather as much as you are about climate. So we can really get a sense of what kinds of choices people are making in terms of trying to balance off their understanding of what they should expect climate to be like with what then happens to them. And long story short, um, they're in for some real changes. Uh, in the 13th century, in the 1250s, there's major volcanic eruptions elsewhere, which cause the first stages of what people have talked about, the Little Ice Age. And for our guys, this drops their temperature, annual temperature, by about 2 degrees centigrade. doesn't sound like much, but that's massive as far as uh, impacts in, in these cold northern places. And we'll so, pick up on that theme when we take, uh, after we come back from this break, uh, sure. we'll have to take a few min a few seconds off here, and then we will be back with uh, Dr. Tom McGovern and discuss the ramifications of climate change and human settled settlement geography in the northern climes after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Can you dig it, 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 d
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We've been uh, discussing the unique features of the archaeological record and the landscape record in uh, the northern Atlantic region and specifically the regions that the Vikings settled, uh, a grand swath of of, uh, landscapes uh, ranging from Scandinavia into Iceland and Greenland and ultimately into North America. Um, One of the points that, that Tom McGovern made that is especially striking and, and one that comes to mind when we sort of start to compare the patterns of human settlement and landscape change in other parts of the world versus the northern area is, is you're talking about here in the northern areas about landscapes where the productivity and the biogeographic productivity is initially limited anyway. So the implication would be that even a fewer number of settlements and a fewer number of people would have a tremendous uh, effect on the the landscape threshold that would be necessary for supporting people once they got there so that landscapes would be destroyed by relatively small numbers of people and that has grand implications for the success of settlements and the relationship of these settlements to climatic change. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about that sensitivity? Sure. I, I think the um, the story that we have been been telling about the North Atlantic settlements, especially in Iceland, but elsewhere as well, was at least initially a fairly simple one, is you have these farming cultures coming into areas that previously hadn't had farmers in there before. Uh, they overexploit the land. They push things further than they probably should have. Um, they begin to get degradation taking place of soils and vegetation. And then the climate changes unfavorably for them, and, and bad things happen. Norse Greenland becomes extinct. Iceland loses major portion of its population and endures terrible hardship. Um, and it was sort of a, a sad story, but one which was, you know, kind of distant from our problem. It's sort of, you know, Vikings screw up environmentally and pay the price for it. Right. Now we're realizing it's actually much more complicated than that. Um, a lot of work been done in the last uh, five years, but especially under the International Polar Year Support, uh, comparing the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, multiple teams working here, are really bringing out some very different different views. Uh, one of the things we're beginning to realize is actually the Norse in Iceland were actually trying to manage the landscape pretty carefully, uh, working with historians, uh, looking at the law codes which have survived from medieval Iceland. We're realizing a lot of the land use practices and the herding practices there uh, which are, are legislated are actually pretty close to what the UN tells herders in Africa to do now. It's not a tragedy common situation at all. And indeed, it looks as though for a long period, uh, they were managing pretty successfully. We can also see that they're not just keeping the same mix of animals out there. The animal bones we're getting from our stratified deposits, the layered deposits that we can date, uh, are showing that they really are changing things around. They're, they're reducing the number of pigs. They're reducing the number of goats. Uh, so as the forest is cleared, they're not just keeping the same mix of animals there. Um, and what we are seeing, though, is, is from the modeling work which our, our friends have been doing in the, uh, the geoarchaeology end, it's pretty clear that actually they could have kept a very large number of sheep in the highlands without getting 
erosion started, as long as they, they managed the end of the grazing season carefully. The big deal here is you have to bring the sheep down uh, exactly the right time. So if they're up in the uh, highlands past right. the point where the vegetation is still growing, that's when the trouble starts. And it's about a two-week window. So there's not much margin there. You've got to get it right. And, of course, then if you're subjected to climate change, um, hmm, how to get that right? Because partly what we're seeing from this highly detailed climate record we're now looking at isn't just periods when it gets cold, but periods when it fluctuates back and forth from one year to another, cold, warm, cold, warm, cold, warm, how to figure that out. So if you're an Icelandic land manager back in the 1200s, this is a real problem you're being presented with uh, by, by nature. Also, in the 1200s, the Icelanders are slipping into a civil war. Uh, the great families are fighting each other. Uh, they're pretty distracted. They're probably not paying much attention to environmental variables. Uh, so just about the point with 2020 hindsight, we can see they should have been paying attention to land use. They're busy fighting each other. Um, but but then, wait a minute. But wait a minute. Were, were these wars, the civil wars, was that related to the scarcity of resources at all? Actually, it was probably related to good times. That they had a long period of uh, a relatively favorable climate. Uh, they had been in Iceland at this point for over 250 years. They, I think, felt they understood things pretty well. Uh, they were cranking up their wool production. They were increasing commercial fishing. They were increasing their trade to the outside. Um, so, so I think they were thinking of themselves as a fairly wealthy, successful society. And what was happening there is the different chieftains in the different parts of the island were competing even more intensively. Uh, again, they weren't part of the Norwegian crown yet, the Norwegian realm. They had a, um, uh, an independent uh, society, and the fighting increased. So just about the point we now can see the climate fluctuations starting, just about the point where we can see the erosion problems starting, uh, they're very distracted. They've got all this problem with, with fighting each other. Uh, so that, that is a problem which comes in there. So we can see the hints of how things are beginning to go off the rails. For one of the things they're seeing is they can't anticipate the climate change because, you know, we can't either. Uh, right. But things are, things are happening. But we see some cases where it looks as though there was successful long-term management of woodlands. Uh, not all the woodlands disappear from Iceland. The ones that are still there are conserved or maintained. So they do reduce them drastically, but not to zero. Also, in the last couple of years, we've gotten a remarkable story developing uh, about successful waterfowl conservation on a very local level around Lake Nivan in northern Iceland. This is a place where today 30,000 waterfowl come from both uh, North America and Europe. It's the only place this happens. It's a World Wildlife Center, and they breed and raise their young, go away again. And every year, the local Icelanders living around the lake gather 10,000 or more eggs from those nests. But they do it in such a way they don't wipe out the birds. They take only a couple of eggs from each nest. They don't kill the adults. And we know from, from history this has gone back to at least the 1850s. We started doing archaeology around Lake Mivatn. Again and again, we were finding eggshells, plasters of eggshells all over in the, the mid-deposits, which we know from the volcanic tephra go right back to the first settlement age in the 870s. And we find very, very few bones of the adult birds. So what we're work, working with now is a uh, collaboration with our Icelandic colleagues in the biosciences as well to get identifications on all these, these eggshells. And so far it looks like the vast majority of them are, in fact, ducks. So it looks like we've got here is a, a combination of archaeology, ethnographic uh, evidence for local-level 
long-term sustainability, 1,200 years of sustainable use of these ducks, taking 10,000 eggs a year or more uh, year after year without drawing down that resource. So if we look at that and we compare it to our old story about these people being bad managers and, and you know unsustainable, actually it's a more complicated story than that. In fact, these people look pretty clever. And in fact, they look like they've done something which... Uh, we'd, we'd like to be able to do that ourselves in our own culture to be sustainable for a millennium. So, so to, to what degree do we see that there is a changing role between climate and the ability for people to manage it? Is there a sensitivity to climatic change at mm-hmm. some point? I think some of the things you can see now is, again, the, the dating and the proxy climate record, which is, again, made so much better by the, uh, the ice cores in Greenland and uh, uh, sea cores as well, are suggesting really... Um, What's the problem for people in the North Atlantic with climate change isn't necessarily just cooling. Uh, you know, the old story, well, it's simple, it got cold and they died. It's, right. more, compl- it's more complicated than that. Right. It's really the problem of interannual fluctuation, of being able to predict what the climate's going to be next year from last year. And ultimately, it's the problem of, of all your farming knowledge you've accumulated under one climate regime uh, becoming obsolete when the climate regime suddenly changes on you. Uh, so a lot of this really is thinking about what people now talk about often as traditional ecological knowledge when they're talking about modern indigenous people. Well, you know, there was a time when that's all the knowledge there was, and that's what we're seeing with the Norse. When they really are being stressed by climate, it's when their, their know-how, this traditional ecological knowledge accumulated in their centuries' experience in one climate regime is being lost by climate change. One of the things that's really dramatic is there's a flip over in about 1425 uh, between trends and storminess in the North Atlantic. And we know this from some of the, the sea salt sodium that winds up on top of the Greenland ice sheet. And this is a proxy for you know, how stormy is it. And from this, we can see that all the time that the Eric the Red was sailing across the North Atlantic and colonizing Greenland, he was in a North Atlantic which was far, far less stormy than the one that we inhabit. Right. Uh, this may be one of the reasons why the, the, uh, the people that sail the North Atlantic and Viking ships today often are in trouble because it's a far stormier place than it was. So all their expectations about what you could do in boats, all the maritime adaptation, all the seafaring, was based on centuries of experience of a North Atlantic that was pretty calm. And then in 1425, it flips over, and you have an amazing threshold crossing event. So instead of the trend being calmer, it suddenly flips over to be more and more stormy. So the North Atlantic that was sailed by Columbus and his contemporaries was a much more dangerous place than the one that Eric the Red sailed. And that flip over is something which we know put terrible stress on the communities in the North Atlantic, and that may very well have been one of the major contributing factors for what happens to Norse Greenlanders. So the problems that the Norse are facing in the North Atlantic are a compound of a whole bunch of different things. Um, and climate fluctuation, climate cooling, threshold crossing events, all those things are happening to them, and they are surviving them all, sometimes with, with you know loss of soil, sometimes with loss of vegetation. But at least in Iceland, they managed to, to get down to the present. And, of course, you know, Reykjavik today is a shiny, modern, trendy city and one of the top five best places to live in the world in many UN uh, and other uh, um, systems of grading. So you have these multiple stories and multiple outcomes in the North Atlantic of people being subjected to different kinds of climate impacts, but overall 
in the same area at about the same time period. So one thing that's been emerging from this comparative work of trying to look from one island to another is that we're really coming up with, with three very different kinds of stories. We compare the Faroe Islands, Iceland, and Greenland. Uh, in the Faroes, we have a settlement somewhere after 800, um, and it looks as though they have managed to be pretty sustainable. Uh, populations stay small. They continue to use seabirds very heavily. Uh, they're supplementing their agriculture with a lot of uh, marine fishing and marine seabird hunting. But as far as we can tell, there's really very little in the way of an environmental impact. No huge erosion stories in Iceland. In Iceland, there is a huge erosion story, uh, and certainly vast portions of Iceland have been turned to desert as a result of combination of climate and human action. But there it's looking increasingly like it wasn't a case of just heedless overexploitation, but of a culture that almost got it right. You know, they, they saved the ducks, and that story continues to be positive. And it looks as though they came very close to managing their pastures successfully, but were ultimately defeated not just by cold, but by variability, by climate change and by conjunctures of events coming together, that just at the very moment they need to pay attention to climate change, they were distracted by having a civil war. And on and that then, basis, uh, we're going to have to close uh, this particular segment, but we will be back and uh, explore in some greater detail the relationship between human adaptation and settlement and the very significant issue of climate, climate change in this laboratory that is known as the Northern Atlantic. We'll be back after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
We're back with our special guest, Dr. Thomas McGovern, and we are discussing the archaeology in the lands of the Vikings and recent developments in North Atlantic archaeology. When I was putting this show together with my assistant, one of the uh, items that, that really struck us as being very, very significant was the fact that the Northern Atlantic, in addition to being sort of its own laboratory for examining the human and environmental dynamic and their linkages, one of the issues here, and one that, that strikes us is is that that climate in the northern Atlantic is a very very has a very very unique expression, and secondly, settlement geography has a very unique threshold where minimal changes in climate have incredible impacts on human settlement and the product productivity of the landscape. And in conjunction with that, we look to archaeology increasingly in terms of its message for relevance and what it can tell us about this, in, these types of contemporary issues, uh, the most striking one of which, of course, in this day and age is global warming. And this is probably one of the areas which is most pivotal to understanding these dynamics. Forty years ago, there was an, a tremendous brouhaha in the scientific community when the Greenland ice cores were taken, um, these were a, a, hundred, a, a series of, of uh, borings into the ice sheet in Greenland that preserved literally high-resolution uh, proxies for what had been going on in the climate insofar as they measured changes in the water balances, whether salt water and fresh water contributed oxygen isotope assessments, the survival of microorganisms, which were very sensitive to changes in the climate. And of course, these were by and large recording events that were climatically determined. And the resolution of these cores is such that they also provide information once you get into what we now call the Anthropocene or periods where humans have actually provided the impact on the uh, climate, climatics, and there is a very strong cross-fertilization between human settlement, environmental degradation, and climate. And what we're seeing is that these cores and the types of research that Dr. McGovern is doing in these very sparse environments have incredible implications on what we can project will be um, our future and how we have to go ahead and marshal our uh, abilities to regulate um, environmental degradation so that climate doesn't overtake us. Tom, why don't you talk a little bit about that question and what the implications are of climate change for the future based on what we know about the past? Sure. I think one of the great challenges for modern archaeology uh, and all of our friends in paleoclimatology as well is to put together the stories that we have, that we know about, of long-term human interaction with places, landscape, resources, changing climate on the millennial scale and see how they worked out. Um, Peggy Nelson, our good friend from ASU, uh, talks about archaeology providing completed experiments of the past, the sort of thing you can actually see where it starts, where it goes, try to find the factors that, that triggered a pathway going down this way versus another one. So this is a really exciting area in modern archaeology coming together with all the new tools we have for the high-resolution paleoclimate data coming in just the right time. Uh, and being able to put it all together gives us a sense of, of being able to deliver information for people today attempting to construct scenarios to get us to a sustainable future. 
Uh, one of the big problems we can we can see in the past, looking at our own cases, is the big problems that people had in the North Atlantic in responding to climate change, in responding to the first bits of globalization, uh, was simply that they, they didn't have a wide enough field of information to be able to, to build a scenario, to think through how they're going to get to through the problems they are facing to a sustainable future. And in the present world, we have some of the same kinds of issues. Uh, people are not usually using the deep past. People are using often not using the examples of non-Western societies in building scenarios of planning how we're going to deal with climate change, with resource depletion. Um, and I think there's an urgent need, and lots of other archaeologists think this too, for us to do a better job um, of getting the word out. And programs like this are absolutely vital uh, in trying to get the word out that archaeology isn't just something about the past, isn't just something old and relevant, but it's really also about the future. And so what are we picking up, uh, especially from your particular area, which is yep. so I, sensitive I I, to these things? Sure. I think one of the key things that, which we've been trying to do in the North Atlantic is get the sense of why do we have these really different outcomes from at least initially similar societies colonizing across the area. Uh, why are some surviving with minimal impact on landscape? Why are some surviving with massive impact on landscape? And why some like the Norse Greenlanders don't survive at all uh, and become extinct? Um, and Norse Greenland has been for a long time sort of the poster child for maladaptation, for a really failed society. Um, Jared Diamond's story about them was a society that chose to fail. And again, that was kind of the story we, we told them, but it's changed now. And in many yeah. ways, it's a little scarier. Uh, North Greenland was colonized from Iceland uh, in the 980s, and people are going there in part to hunt walrus. Uh, walrus hunting is a big deal for them, um, and they maintain this hunt for walrus tusk and hide uh, up north, 800 kilometers north of their settlement areas. They can only farm in a very few little pockets in South Greenland, uh, but they bring with them the same animals, sheep, goats, cows, and pigs as well to Greenland uh, from Iceland they started with, and they set up these settlements there uh, in around the year 1000, and they're engaged heavily in this transatlantic trade right from the beginning, and they're providing this high-value Viking Age prestige good, the walrus ivory, uh, which is being consumed in Europe. Uh, but what they're also doing is they're changing their subsistence from something which was much more Icelandic, where seals are a very minor part of the, the full diet, to a situation where seals are increasingly becoming a key resource. What's happened here is they've crossed over an environmental barrier and they've gotten into an area where the harp seals and the hooded seals, the ones you see in all the Greenpeace posters, are, um, are in vast numbers in millions of animals that are coming seasonally through their area. So one of the things we can see in both the zooarchaeology, the animal bones from middens, and also increasingly some, some really nice our Danish colleagues in um, in Copenhagen uh, looking at the the stable isotopes, nitrogen, carbon, in the bones of the, the dead Greenlanders or of the cemeteries. Um, we're seeing there is, in both cases, is an indication of greatly increased use of seals in the later time period. If we put this together with the the ice core evidence and the sea core evidence, one of the things we can see is the Norse and Greenland are responding to a really shattering of climate event happening in the 1200s. Again, rapid cooling, and in Iceland it's bad news for growing season, but in Greenland it's bad news even more because this is a situation in which the sea ice from south uh, 
comes into South Greenland in the summertime, comes being washed around from East Greenland, and then winds up in the uh, the coastal area down the south. And what this does is, of course, it drops temperatures. It also makes it really much more difficult to get around, and it also uh, is a real challenge to sealing. But one thing we can see them doing in both the animal bones and also in the the isotopes and the human bones is that they actually successfully get through this really serious, you know, flip over total change by intensifying sealing. Uh, and the way they go sealing isn't at all the way the Eskimos do it. Um, they don't use harpoons. They are using boat drives, and they're probably taking most of the boats and most of the active people out and for a two- or three-week period intensively hunting seals in the outer fjords. And they manage it. They organize their society. They, they intensify. Uh, they get through this really difficult period in the 1250s and 1300s, and we can actually see pretty much how they're doing it from looking at the, uh, the isotopic evidence. And, and, and on 14- that note, we're going to have to wrap it up, Tom. I'm sorry. Uh, yep. This is just a fascinating issue, but I think uh, what I'd like to emphasize to our listenership is that these lessons of environmental change, climate change, and human coping with those changes and their impacts on those uh, mechanisms of environmental and climatic change are going to be keys for us going forward as we try to uh, save our planet, in a sense, and we derive some lessons from our forebearers and trying to manage uh, an environment which has uh, increasingly suffered and has been increasingly degraded. And on that note, I just want to uh, thank my guest, Tom McGovern, for spending this lovely hour with us, and we will see you again next week. Thank you so much. Thank Good you. Good night. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.